Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, monopolies and what's wrong with them and how to get rid of them. Our guest is Tom Hartman, radio host and author extraordinaire whose latest book is called The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, which has a forward by Ralph Nader calling it the most important book in a generation on this topic. Tom Hartman, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio. Well, thank you, David. It's always great being with you. Thanks for coming on. Uh, what's wrong with monopolies? Aren't those uh, good signs of success? <laughs> no, I think you know. I think probably the the analogy that's best, and I make it in the book, is uh, between monopolies and cancer. Um, you know, the, the simple reality is that cancer. Uh, the way the cancer works, our bodies, you know, there's constantly cells are reproducing in our bodies, and sometimes they're mutated reproductions, and they don't. Uh, work right, and sometimes they're cancerous. And we have an immune system that searches them out, identifies them, destroys them, digests them, puts an end to them, and that's that. Uh, occasionally, one gets through though, and and sets up house, with, you know, because typically because our immune system is suppressed, or it just happens to be an incredibly virulent, um, you know, resistant uh, form of cancer. And then what it does, you know, what that one cell does is it said, I, this one cell, I, Claudius, I will take over the entire body. I am going to take all the nutrients from this body, all the nutrients. And it starts redirecting, the, literally, the, the, it starts creating new blood vessels around itself. And you get this whole hypervascularization around the, the tumor site, and it's drawing basically all the blood from the body, as much all the nutrients in the body, as much as it can get. And over time, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it looks like it's been very successful. Uh, but in the process, it's killing the body. I mean, remember Steve Jobs in the last weeks before he died, he looked like you know uh, somebody from Auschwitz. And it's because a tumor was sucking all the energy out of his body, and you know, which is typically how people die of cancer. Monopoly is the same thing to capitalism. Monopoly, I mean, capitalism is only, modern capitalism is only 300 years old, and monopoly has existed throughout that time, and numerous countries and economies have figured this out and put into place their own immune systems, like we did in the 1890s with the Sherman Antitrust Act. But monopoly is where an individual business or a small group of businesses um, you know, like our airlines, for example, you know, if Delta raises prices two bucks, so does United 30 seconds later. They operate as a monopoly, even though they're separate companies. Um, so it's, it's technically an oligopoly. But in any case, um, it's where the monopolists say, we are going to take everything. Small town America has seen this with Walmart moving in. The average uh, loss of small businesses is, is 110 local businesses get wiped out because of Walmart comes into the neighborhood. Um, that that's what's going on. Monopoly is cancer, and it is it has successfully devastated the American middle class. Uh, Reagan stopped enforcing the monopoly laws in 1982, and as a result, America is a very different place than it was pre-Reagan. There, there, we no longer have small and local businesses all over the place. Instead, it's you know it's all the same stuff, and uh, you know, and and that's also destroying the American middle class. 2010 was the year that. Fewer than 50% of Americans could claim to be in the middle class for the first time since World War II or since, you know, a few few years after World War II. Um, so Reaganism has just, uh, uh, and a big piece of it was his stopping the enforcement of the monopoly laws. 
has devastated America. And, and the monopolies devastate the middle class, I, I assume, through several different means. But but how? Through through wages, through prices, through political influence? What's the, what's the means of, of destroying the middle class? All of the above. First off, uh, the average American family is spending uh, $5,000 a year more than do families in other countries that enforce their anti-monopoly laws. I call that the monopoly tax, although the money's not going to the government. It's going to these giant corporations. For example, Americans pay two to three times as much for Internet broadband and for crappier service also as any other country in the world. Americans pay more than twice as much for cell phone service than any other country in the world. We pay between two and five times as much for pharmaceuticals as any other developed country in the world. Uh, we pay more for airfare. We pay more for housing. We pay more for, I mean, you know, fill in the blanks, right? Pretty much everything, because pretty much every sector of American business now in the last 40 years has been turned into basically a monopoly. So number one, we're, we're paying, the average American family is paying an extra $5,000 a year to these giant corporations for crappy products and crappy service um, and, and, you know, this extra payment. Number two, um, when monopolies happen, they, they destroy a large chunk of the workforce. Uh, if you've got, as, as we had in America at one point in time in the 90s, um, literally thousands or, or certainly hundreds of substantial size Internet service providers, for example, offering Internet service. And then, you know, the, 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 the FCC changes their rules so that if your cable company uh, comes into your house, no other company can offer you Internet service through that particular pipe, just that cable company, making them a monopoly. Um, then what happens is, you know, for example, Comcast is providing Internet service to about half of Americans. Well, there used to be hundreds of companies that did that. Each one of those companies had their own HR department, their own marketing department, their own accounting department, um, in addition to, you know, the, 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 the engineering, you know, actually producing the product or providing the service. When you merge all those companies or you acquire all those companies or you put all those companies out of business, all those extra employees go away. Now, Milton Friedman and, and, and uh, uh, you know, friends, uh, including Robert Bork, claimed that this was a good thing. This was efficiency. Um, but it, it devastates the workforce. I mean, you can see a 20 to 40% drop in just the simple number of employees uh, over the last 40 years as a consequence of these mergers. So that's the second one. And then third, of course, uh, to your point, is that um, by having monopoly power in the marketplace, in other words, you no longer have, it, it, living here in Portland, there aren't 30 companies that I could, if I was really good at, at engineering, internet service provider, you know, ISP stuff, there's not a bunch of companies that I can go to and knock on their door to try and get a job. There's only one, uh, arguably two. And neither one of them is here. They're both, you know, uh, Comcast is down in Georgia, and I, and I don't know where the other one is. Um, but but uh, basically, that's it. And so because they have not only monopoly marketplace power, they also have monopoly power in the labor marketplace. So they get to set the labor rates. We saw this in radio, for example, in, in the business that I'm in, in big time. You know, when, when uh, Clinton signed the uh, Telecommunications Act in 96 that, that uh, prevented monopolies from forming in uh, radio and television, and instantly they did. Uh, wages in the radio sector just started dropping right across the board because Clear Channel basically ended up owning everything. It, it's it's interesting that, that this five thousand uh, dollars extra in monopoly tax. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tom Hartman, but this is above and beyond 
what people in the United States have to pay outside of their their government taxes for things like healthcare and university and preschool and you know the national parks you now have to pay to get in and, uh, and and in other countries you get these things for your taxes but then when you look at the comparison what's actually needed in healthcare uh, seems to be exactly the type of job destroying efficiency and monopoly uh, that you were just speaking against. This is what is actually working in healthcare in all these other countries. Um, does, does that make sense? It does. And it's an interesting paradox, but uh, it's real. There are these things called natural monopolies. And natural monopolies work best when they are. In, in a democracy, they work best when they're in the hands of, of the government, of, of the people, basically, uh, the, when the people have some say in them. And with Internet service providers, for example, we, saw, we see this in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where the city said, okay, we're going to provide high-speed Internet service to everybody in this city. And it's like 30-some-odd 30, 30 dollars a month, you know, and it's really fast. It's like gigabyte speed um, because it's being run by one central source. You see the same thing with single-payer health care. And now... This has to do with things where, you know, having a monopoly makes a certain amount of sense because the whole natural monopoly thing, there's only one cable into your house that can provide Internet. There's only one water line coming into your house that can provide water. There's only one sewage line from your house going out, going out of your house. There's only one power cable coming into your house. So in each one of those cases... And there's only one hospital in your town. Well, it may well be, yeah. And and the way that we got around it with hospitals, I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and there were three hospitals in Lansing when I was growing up. Uh, Ingham Medical, which was run by the county, was nonprofit. St. Lawrence, which was run by the Catholic Church, which was a nonprofit. And Sparrow Hospital, which was endowed by a guy who was a uh, an Oldsmobile uh, billionaire, multimillionaire back in the day in the 1930s. And uh, it was run as a nonprofit with an endowment. All three of those hospitals are now owned by giant for-profit hospital combines, and they've all massively jacked their prices up. Um, so, you know, yeah. It, it, but with healthcare, with single-payer healthcare, you know, that are ideally should be a uh, essentially a government-run monopoly. The, the, the coverage, as opposed to the hospitals. Right. The corp. The problem with corporate-run monopolies is that a corporation has as its primary purpose making profits. Um, a government has as its primary purpose serving its people. And there's a huge chasm between how you run a hospital to make profits and how you run a hospital to serve the people, for example. Yeah. There, there used to be uh, something called the corporate death penalty uh, when, uh, when corporations were not uh, serving the public interest, right? That's correct. And the corporate death penalty was, you know, American states were quite enthusiastic about it back in the 1800s. Um, every state until the 1890s in their corporate charter laws said that a corporation, when it comes into being in the state uh, or applies for permission of the Secretary of State to come into being, must declare as its first statement of existence that it lives here to serve the people of the state. And then it will it'll do that service by building railroad cars or whatever it may be. And every year or every two years, depending on the state, the secretaries of state of all these states had to look at how these corporations were being run and if they were being run in ways that helped the people. And if not, then they shut the corporation down, broke it up, sold off its assets, and distributed the money to the shareholders. So um, that 
pretty much stopped at the 1890s with the charter-mongering era as a result of monopolies, as a result of John Rockefeller's standard oil monopoly, basically playing states off against each other. But, yeah. So, in terms of playing states off against each other, there's uh, there's some great information in the book about uh, which states went in which direction. Well, how is Delaware different from all the other states? Well, Delaware won the competition. Basically, what happened was um, in the early 1890s, in the in the in the 1880s, Ohio had passed an antitrust law that that kind of presaged or or you know was the was the inspiration for and, and the model for, actually, the Sherman Antitrust Act. Senator Sherman was the U.S. Senator from Ohio also. No coincidence. And John Rockefeller at that time, uh, people now don't realize this because the oil wells are all gone because we sucked all the oil out of Ohio and Pennsylvania. But back in the 1890s, most of the oil in the United States was being produced in those two states. And both those states were just covered with oil wells. And Rockefeller was operating out of Ohio, and he had created this incredibly powerful monopoly. Ohio passed an anti-monopoly law, and in the early 1890s, the, pro- the uh, um, uh, oh, what's the prosecutor called? The attorney general for the state of Ohio uh, went after Rockefeller, said you're operating in violation of our state anti-monopoly laws. And so Rockefeller quite publicly reached out and said, are there any states that are willing to change their laws uh, to allow what I'm doing be legal, and if so, I will move my operations to your state. And so this competition broke out on the East Coast between Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and Delaware. And uh, all of them, and ultimately within that 10-year period, every state in the Union changed their corporate charter laws to do away with that public trust provision and, uh, you know, to allow for what Rockefeller was doing. Rockefeller ended up going with New Jersey because they initially won the competition, but within a year or two, Delaware even won up to New Jersey and said, well, you can create a corporation in Delaware for any purpose that is legal in Delaware. And that's all your, that you can have a one-sentence article of incorporation in Delaware that says the, the ABC Corporation is incorporated in the state of Delaware to, to do anything that is legal in the state of Delaware, period, full stop, that's the end. And that's you know, pretty radical. But that's why more than half of all the companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange are Delaware corporations, even though, you know, most of them aren't in Delaware. In fact, I don't think any of them are. Um, And uh, some of them are even, you know, big multinational conglomerates. But Delaware is the place to be. And what what do the people of Delaware get out of this deal? Well, they get, you know, if you incorporate in Delaware, there's a a small fee, you know, 100 bucks or thereabouts. A fee for your corporation, and then every year you have to pay a a fee to maintain that corporation. And again, it's not a lot. I think it's a hundred bucks or so. Although as your revenue base goes up, that fee can go up. But basically, that's how that's Delaware's principal source of revenue. We've got uh, tens of thousands of companies that are domiciled in in Delaware that legally exist in Delaware, um, and literally, it's just, it's just like the banks in Bermuda. You know that. You'll have a bank with, you know, 500 uh, uh, mailboxes, postboxes, and each one attached to a, to a, a safety deposit box. And, um, you know, uh, these are wealthy people all over the world or big corporations who are putting their money there, but none of them have a physical presence or that, that have established themselves there for tax purposes. Same thing with Delaware. There's there's all these uh, law firms that, that uh, basically are just, you know, fronts for corporations. 
Yeah, we're speaking with Tom Hartman, whose uh, remarkable new book is called The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. Um, Tom, I want to ask about a type of, of company that seems monopolistic to me, seems at least to be a sort of a of a cartel, uh, and that is the the weapons dealers, um, because they don't they don't get that much attention in stories of, of economic history and, and politics in general. Uh, and, and in fact, in the histories that you tell so well in this book, it's always a, a conversation about the, the corporations shrinking the government and the government getting smaller and smaller. Uh, and yet when I go and look at the size of the U.S. budget and the U.S. government, it never seems to get any smaller. It just seems to move all the resources from everything decent and good and useful to the military. Um, is, the, is there anything monopolistic about uh, Lockheed Martin getting such a huge chunk of our tax dollars? Yeah. Yeah, and there are a lot of defense contractors that should probably be broken up because they're operating as monopolies. But more insidiously, to your point, David, is the uh, basically the the trade associations and and the you know and the giant kind of banking companies like Carlyle Group that that basically aggregate these companies or represent multiple ones, and uh, you know so that they pool their lobbying dollars and they can collectively bribe members of Congress. Um, you know, a lot of that problem has to do with how they do business. Um, you know, for example, I don't know if it's Lockheed or McDonnell Douglas, but actually I'm not sure. I, I shouldn't name a specific company without certainty, but it, there are companies, defense contractors, that uh, will build small operations in every single one of the 435 congressional districts in the United States just to make sure that, you know, every, every member of Congress is scared of them because there's a few jobs at stake. Right. And, uh, I mean, you know, uh, we've seen this repeatedly in American history. And, uh, you know, they play the game very well. And they, they lobby Congress very effectively, and they get their people in there and in charge and in positions of power. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the main cancer there, though, isn't, in my opinion, is not so much monopoly as it is um, the 1976-1978 uh, Buckley and Bilotti decisions that were doubled down on with, with Citizens United that allow corporations to basically own politicians, illegalize bribery. Right. So, so-called contributions to campaigns, not just the threat to remove jobs from districts. Right. Oh. Exactly. So what, so what can we do? As in all of your books, Tom, you've got uh, proposals for, for what could be done about this, what other countries have done, what this country has done to some extent in the past. What's, what's the first, second, third step? What should we do uh, to get monopolistic power uh, out of power in the United States? Well, the last president to seriously enforce the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Clayton Act and the, and the Antitrust Act of the 50s, the, 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 you know, the, that updated it, um, was uh, Richard Nixon. He, he initiated the breakup of AT&T. Jimmy Carter finished that job. And then, of course, in came Reagan and said, okay, that's it. We're not going to do that anymore. Uh, so these laws are still on the books. I mean, there was a Supreme Court decision in the 70s, uh, uh, GTE Sylvania case, that sort of bought into Robert Bork's theory that, that um, you know, it doesn't matter how big corporations are, it just matters what the prices are. But um, that, could, that was not decided on the basis of the Constitution. That was based on the law. So the law could be changed. So 
um, I think, you know, we need a slight fine-tuning of our monopoly laws, and, and in particular, an update to the digital age. But really, we just need to start enforcing the damn laws, David. I mean, it's, 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 been, 40, it's been 38 years now since anybody, since any president has enforced in any meaningful way the antitrust laws of the United States. And that's, that's what's produced that $5,000 a year per family monopoly uh, uh, extra payment that we're all making to giant corporations. And that's what's produced the, 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 this wasteland in terms of uh, small and medium-sized businesses and employment opportunities for people. So we just need to start enforcing the damn laws, number one. Number two, tweak them. Seen any, seen any presidential candidates around with any, uh, any platform on this? Elizabeth Warren was all over this in the primary, and Joe Biden has spoken well of her and of her thoughts on, on monopolies. Whether he'll act on it or not is, I think, going to depend on whether we hold his feet to the fire. Pretty uh, darn near impossible. What about holding Congress members' feet to the fire? Is there any way uh, that Congress can compel uh, the U.S. government to enforce existing laws? They could pass a new law that requires, yeah, they could could pass, yes, they could. And, um, you know, again, that's the same thing. It's going to take grassroots efforts. Right now, I don't think most Americans even know what a monopoly is. Um, you know, the, the game monopoly was invented in the 1920s to warn people about the dangers of monopoly. And, um, you know, if you've ever played monopoly, you get it that, you know, it's just like cancer. One person ends up the winner and they own everything. And that's the end of the game. And the game dies at that point. And uh, so, you know, step one is educating the American public, which is why I wrote this book. Yeah, <laughs> but people have misunderstood the game dying to be the game being won. Uh, so there's right. a, there's a problem in understanding there, I think. And 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 if if existing laws were enforced, would that include something you mentioned in the book, which is to separate cable from phone from internet, split these things apart? Oh yeah, absolutely. In France, for example, the way it works is uh, if you're a French cable company and you bring the pipe into somebody's house. Uh, you have to, by law, make uh, you know rent the space on that pipe to any internet service provider that wants to pay you money. Um, so you know you. So for example, here, if my cable bill was, I mean, if this was France, my cable bill would be around twenty-five or thirty dollars a month. This being the United States, <laughs> I'm spending one hundred and sixty dollars a month. But in any case, uh, I've got to have higher speeds because I'm I'm doing the show out of the house. But that's not. I mean, you know, I would have higher speeds than I'm paying $160 for in France for $30 a month. But anyhow, so out of that $30 that I'm paying to the cable company every month, um, if I wanted to get an Internet service provider, um, I would pay an extra 3 or $4 or $5 a month or whatever it may be. I could pay that to Comcast that brings the pipe into my house, or I could pay that to any other company because, hey, it's the Internet. I can reach anybody, and they could be my Internet service provider. And that's why ISP services are so cheap in Europe, because there are literally hundreds of companies in each one of these countries competing for the business of the citizens of those countries. This is also true, you know, in Japan and in Korea and Taiwan. I mean, this is pretty much how every other developed country in the world does it. And, you know, we locked it down for monopoly. And it's crazy. People old enough to remember the early days of the Internet, you used a modem over your telephone line, and you could choose any Internet service provider you wanted. You could up with comcast you could hook up with aol 
you know, there were a whole bunch of smaller ones. In Vermont, we had one called Sovernet, and that got you onto the Internet. Um, when it moved from telephone to cable, by and large, at that point, the cable companies basically lobbied for this, for this change in FCC rules uh, so that they could lock out their competitors. And that's why, uh, <laughs> that's how this small regional cable company, Comcast, ended up buying NBC and Universal Studios and, and, and you know, half, half and controls half the Internet service in America. Um, because it just is so insanely profitable when you've got a monopoly. You can just milk people until they're dry. And, and if we were able to compel enforcement uh, of proper anti-monopoly laws, what would become of Facebook, Google, uh, these giant uh, online monopolies? Would they be put out of existence? Would they be broken into pieces? Would they be regulated and taken over? What, what, what would happen? Well, you've got several different companies that are operating on a monopoly basis in the same Internet space, but in, I'm running on very different business models. Um, with Facebook, uh, Facebook has been doing the same thing John Rockefeller did, which was he would uh, either buy his competitors or destroy them and take over the, the market niche that they had created. And so I don't think Facebook ever should have been able to buy Instagram, for example. Um, but they have literally bought or put out of business hundreds of companies, and you know that needs to stop. They need to you know go back and in being into into being the Facebook business. Um, with regard to Google, uh, I think that you know that that's a little more complex. The my biggest concern about Google isn't so much the monopoly power they have on internet search, although that's huge and substantial, and we need to have a conversation about how to deal with that but also the fact that they are in a position to know. I mean, just, just imagine this. This is the position that Mark Zuckerberg and the guys who run Facebook, you know, who owns Facebook and the guys who run Google are in right now. Imagine, David, the power you would have, the ability that you would have to change, uh, to, to make yourself insanely rich, if nothing else. If you literally knew at the end of every day what every one of, hundreds of millions of conversations had been talking about. If you knew that the majority of people are talking about this new product or hating that product or loving this product or thinking this politically or worried about that, if you knew that, you could use that information to do just about anything. Yep. And with Google, if you use Gmail, they're literally reading every email you write. If you are using one of the big Internet service providers, AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, any of them, um, you know, they literally not only can read every email you write, they can see every single website you go to, they know every story you have read, they know everything that you have done. And with Facebook, of course, they know not only every page that you visit and every news story that you look at, but they also know all of your private conversations that you think are exclusively private to you. They have all that information. And not only that, not only do they aggregate this information, boil it down, distill it, and use it for their own purposes, but they also sell it. We saw this in 2016 when right. you know, all that Facebook information went to the Trump campaign, and they used it to micro-target, creating over 1,500 unique ads. Oh, you want white guys who own a motorcycle who are between 30 and 40, who don't think well of people who are black or who are gay, uh, who are not married, and who have had uh, sex in the last year, uh, uh, fewer, than one, fewer than twice. Here you go. Right, you know, and then you could tailor an ad right to those people, um, and that's an insane level of power that nobody's even talking about. 
I'm very glad that you're talking about it. I wish we could talk about it for another couple of hours, but we're out of minutes. Uh, Our guest has been Tom Hartman. The book, which you need to pick up a copy of right away, is called The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. Tom, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks, David, so much. And I'm really looking forward to your book on on World War II. You do such great writing on issues of war and peace. Um, Keep it up. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.